but worthy, the least of his favor. But Jesus left heaven for me. The Word became flesh, and he died as my Savior, forsaken on dark Calvary. I am not worthy, this dull tongue repeats it. I am not worthy, this heart gladly beats it. Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy! love and what grace. I am not worthy, the least of his he is preparing a place where I shall dwell with my glorified Savior forever to look on his face. I am not worthy this dull tongue heart gladly beats it. Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy, what love, and what Good, good song goes along with everything we're going to be talking about today. Yep, I will turn it on after I dismiss the kids. Okay, so I'm not used to turning this thing on. So. Okay, kids, children, up through fourth grade, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Luke and Amanda, I believe, have it this month. That should be fun. Luke usually uh, brings something enjoyable for the kids. <laughs> so. Okay, so Pastor asked Luke and I both to share some lessons that we learned from the worship conference. Um, to be honest, it's, uh, there was too much in the worship conference for me to share everything. And I really, I felt like I'm, I should just boil it all down to one point and not try to overwhelm you and do injustice to what the lessons that we learned. Because to be honest, if I were to try to talk about everything we learned during the worship conference... Nobody would be convinced of anything because I wouldn't have enough time to develop the point that I'm trying to make, right? So I picked one, one of the messages that was really, really important to me during the conference. This is preached by Pastor Tegan Jose on the second night, I believe it was. 
He's a pastor up in New Hampshire. Um, and I wanted to kind of take the root concept from his message, but then I, I embellished it. I went in and developed it for myself um, because I felt like it was a good place to start, but I needed to go further with it than maybe he had time to at, at the time. And so I, I appreciate the opportunity that we got to go to the worship conference. Um, I know some of you helped to give towards that, made it a lot easier, especially with pastor not being able to go. I had to rebook the hotels and the rental cars and all that kind of stuff. So whoever gave offerings, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so having said everything that I've just said, I'm not going to be dealing with the type of music that you should be listening to at home. The conference was about worship music, and that is a totally different topic than what we, than what we come across when we're dealing with worship. Um, when you deal with your secular stuff that you're listening at home, that's, that's a whole other issue. I'm also not going to be going into specifics as to what is right and what is wrong in music, because to be honest, that's, gonna, that's more of something I feel like is a teaching opportunity, something we could sit down and we could talk through um, and hash out, because there are a lot of nuances to music and what we listen to in our homes. But I want to kind of give us a foundational principle this morning as it relates to worship. And the conference was about conservative worship, so obviously we're not talking about contemporary worship styles. We're talking about conservative, traditional worship styles. And I, I want to give you a principle that lays part of the foundation for why Harvest Hills Baptist Church uses traditional music. We don't use the contemporary music that most other churches do. And basically, the central principle that I'm going to develop is this. God has the right to decide how he is going to be worshipped. At Harvest Hills, we sing a song, oftentimes, worthy of worship. Some of you could sing it with me. Worthy of worship, worthy of... And I'm off, okay. So, but God is worthy of our worship, right? But isn't he not just worthy of our worship, he's also worthy to decide how we are going to to worship him. And so I want to lay a biblical case for God's right to decide how he's worshiped and to lay one principle for how he has said he wants to be worshiped. So we're going to look at um, some passages starting off in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 1 through 3 to start with. But if you think about the topic of worship, oftentimes we think that God tells us to worship him, but it's really open for us to decide how we're going to worship him, right? And we, we feel like God has been silent on the topic of how he wants to be worshipped. But when you really think about it, the entire law is really just one big worship manual. It's God saying, this is how I want to be worshipped, right? Bring this offering. Bring me a lamb that is spotless, without blemish, and sacrifice that on this altar in this way, right? That was all part, part of the worship in the Old Testament law. God didn't leave it up to us to decide how to worship him in the Old Testament. There was obviously some liberty for creative expression. David wrote all of the Psalms. Where those Psalms had been, not all the Psalms, but David wrote many of the Psalms, and that was his opportunity to creatively express worship for God. But that doesn't mean that God said nothing about how he wanted to be worshipped. So we're going to look at Leviticus 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and a bullock for the sin offering, and two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather thou all the congregation together unto the door of the tabernacle, 
of the congregation. And then verse 13, And Moses brought Aaron's son and put coats upon them and girded them with girdles. That's interesting. And put bonnets upon them as the Lord commanded Moses. And then verse 21, And he washed the inwards and the legs in water, and Moses burnt the whole ram upon the altar, and it was a sacrifice for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So God was giving a lot of details in just this one chapter about how he wanted to be worshipped. And what he said affected the clothes that Aaron and his sons wore. It affected the anointing oil. It affected the offering. It affected the place, the location where they were to worship. It says to bring the, bring the congregation together where? Onto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So God was giving minute details about how he wanted to be worshipped in this passage. And I think a lot of times when we think about worship, we think about the singing part of the service, right? We think about the congregationals, we think about the choir and the special music. But that's not all that is involved in worshiping God. When we talk about the congregational singing, that's the whole congregation giving a group offering to God. We're, the Bible calls this a sacrifice of praise in the New Testament. Okay? We are offering up a sacrifice to God of our praise as a community, as, as a congregation. When you have the preaching, the preaching is God speaking to us to show us how to worship him, in essence. How to, and our daily lives are an aspect of worshiping him. The offering that we take up, it's not just to fund the lights and the heat in our building. It is an act of worship. It is giving back to God some of what he has given to us because of our gratitude for what he has done. It's helping to further along his agenda, his mission that he wants to accomplish in the world. And so the offering is part of worship, the special music. That's one person getting up and singing a song to encourage us to worship God in a certain way or to latch on to a certain truth about God. And so these are all aspects of worship. Everything that we do in this building from the moment that we start our services till the end is intended to be part of worshiping God. <clears throat> And God has a will, a specific will about how we are to worship him. So when it comes to our worship of God, God in the Old Testament, he did tell us not just to worship him, he told us how to worship him. Now the main principle I want to get across today is that God has not only the right to tell us to worship him, but he has the right to tell us to worship him in a way that is different than the worship of of other false gods. Our central text that we're going to be looking at is Deuteronomy chapter number 12. We'll go ahead and flip over there. Deuteronomy chapter number 12. And verse 29 through 32. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. After that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. 
For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Whatsoever things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish it. So, like I said, the whole of the Old Testament, the law that was given, is basically a worship manual. But in this passage, God narrows it down, not just to say, this is how I want you to worship, but I don't want you to worship in a certain way. And according to the text, he is saying that he does not want them to worship him after the manner of the gods of the nations that they were coming in to conquer. <clears throat> he, says, he says, don't ask, how did these nations serve their gods? And then don't conclude... Well, I'm going to do likewise, right? Literally, that's what the passage says. Don't, don't look at the world and say, what are they doing? I'm going to copy them. He says in verse 31, thou shalt not do so unto the Lord. That almost sounds like the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image, da-da-da-da. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother, okay? The thou shalt type of statement there. This is a direct command from God. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. One of the biggest things that tripped Israel up throughout their history was trying to worship God in the ways of the world. You think of when Israel came out of Egypt, okay? They crossed over the, over the Red Sea and Moses goes up into Sinai. What do the people of Israel begin doing almost immediately? They create a calf, and they begin worshiping it. Now, were they worshiping a god? Were they worshiping Baal or Ashtaroth or any of these other gods? No, they called that god Jehovah. They were worshiping God in the ways of the, world, of the cultures around them. That was one of the sins of Israel. And then you get to the sins of Jeroboam. The sin of Jeroboam was, again, they was creating these, these idols, these altars, and the people were worshiping them but they were worshiping them in the name of Jehovah God. So they were choosing to worship God, but they wanted to dictate the terms of how God was to be worshiped. And Israel continued to go back to that form of worship over and over and over throughout their history. And Deuteronomy 12 tells us that we're not to worship God in these ways. And so God clearly commanded the Jews not to use the methods of the Gentile world and we have an example of when this happened and how seriously God took it. In Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, it says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is... That the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now you think about Nadab and Abihu. These were sons of Aaron, right? They were in a godly home. They had been raised and trained in the priesthood. And they come to offer their sacrifice. And it says they offered strange fire before the Lord. That word strange is not just saying weird, okay? Strange is often associated in the Old Testament with strangers, okay? When you see the word strangers in the Bible, it's referring to the Gentiles, okay? So the concept here is this is fire, not only that didn't belong on the altar, but there's, there's reason to believe this is fire 
This is, an all, this is a type of fire that they were offering that the Gentiles would have offered in their sacrifices. And God, God took this so seriously, what was the conclusion? What did he do? He slew them, right? And this isn't just an Old Testament fire, uh, an Old Testament concept about God, that God is so vengeful, so wrathful, that he takes worship so seriously that he would kill people in the Old Testament, but God's a God of love, and he's kind and compassionate now in the New Testament. Do we have two separate gods? Did God change from one side to the next? Hebrews chapter 12 says our God is a consuming fire. God has not changed his character. He has not changed how seriously he takes this matter of his worship. And so we need to take it seriously as well. And then in Exodus chapter 30 verse 9 gives the, gives the specific command that, Mo, that Moses is referencing here. It says, ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. Neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. So God took this concept of being worshipped in the right way extremely seriously in the Old Testament. Now, as believers in the New Testament, a lot of times we look at the laws of the Old Testament and we write them off, right? It's important for us to understand the believer's relationship to the Old Testament if we're going to understand this principle properly. Um, oftentimes, when, when we look at the Old Testament, we throw out most of it, except for David and Goliath. We love that story, right? pastor just preached on it. So, because it encourages us to be strong and to fight against our giants. But we don't look at a lot of these other things because, like, I, do, does God really expect me to wear a skull cap and strings coming out of my clothes just like the Jews as a, as a believer now? We know that that's not true. As you read the, Old, or the New Testament, you come to Romans 6, verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So we're not under the law. We are not required to keep all the little details of the Mosaic law. And, and honestly, in the law, in this case, it's being taken as a whole. I have a quote from George Guthrie as he was comment commenting on this. He said, let's be honest. Certain parts of the Old Testament can seem just plain weird, recurringly odd and unaccommodating, as Mark Coolridge put it. And no part of the Old Testament seems more foreign than those sections that detail God's law for Israel. Whether we read that the Israelites were not to wear clothing with mixed fabric or eat shrimp or make bald spots on their head on behalf of the dead, we struggle to see what this has to do with us. And I simply haven't been tempted to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, have you? There's a lot of, there's a lot of the Old Testament that doesn't seem to apply, right? And the truth of Romans 6 is we are not under the law. We are not held to the strictures of the Old Testament law. <clears throat> but some people take this to say that, therefore, God has no requirements on my life. God expects nothing of me. And Paul further goes on in, in the text in Romans 6, and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound because I'm under, not under the law? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So we still have an obligation to do what is morally right before God, even though we're not under the, the exact laws that we find in the Old Testament. And now when we come to the New Testament, we know that we're not under the law of Moses, right? But we are under a different type of law. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law 
of Christ. So as a Christian, I'm not under the law of Moses, but I'm under a different law, the law of Christ. In our Sunday school lesson, Jim Berg was going over the fact that every relationship has laws, right? I know my wife, um, got to pick something because I came up with this on the fly, okay? So no, I know my wife doesn't want me to track my raw chicken shoes from work all over the house and get them on the carpet, right? So if she, has, if she doesn't like this, am I going to choose to do it anyways? No, I'm not. Why? Because I love her. Okay? So there's a law in that relationship, but what's the basis of that law? It is love for my wife. I'm going to choose to do things that I know or not do things that I know are going to upset her because I love her. And that is the law of Christ right there. It is the love that we have for him. The, the, you could summarize this, that we are to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And the second side to it is we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we don't have a written-down mosaic law that you have to keep. But we have love. And we are to love God. We are to love other people. And in loving God, there are things that we are going to do because we know they offend him. Or not, not do because we know they offend him. There are things that we are going to do because we want to please him. Because of that desire of love for our God. That is the law of Christ. So as it comes to the Old Testament, though, should we just rip it out of the, old, out of the Bible? Throw it away, get rid of it, ignore it. It's what a lot of us do, you know. But Romans 15 verse 4 actually tells us what the Old Testament is for, for us believers now. It says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The Old Testament was given to teach us lessons. Yes, I'm not under the, all of the, the details of the Mosaic Law, but those laws in the Old Testament, they teach me something. They give me lessons. They teach me about who God is and what God likes and what he doesn't like in life. And so we, we call this finding the principle of the text. If you want to know what the principle of, of an Old Testament passage is, you have to ask yourself, what does this teach me about God and what does this teach me about what he expects of my life. And these principles, they're based on the character of God. And does God's character change from dispensation to dispensation? Does God change his character? No, he does not. So the things that offend God in the Old Testament still offend God in the New Testament. The things that please God still please him today. Now, the way we approach them may be different. And this is, this is the difference between what we call biblical interpretation, application, and principles of Scripture. I'm going to give you definitions for these words real quick just to lay this foundation, okay? So, when you're interpreting the Bible, when you look at a passage and you want to know what does this mean, the Bible only has one meaning unless it is using poetic speech to give a dual meaning, Okay? But normally, when you interpret God's word, you're going to interpret it just like you do any other text that you read. When you read Tom Sawyer, you understand what it says, and it has one meaning. If it had multiple meanings, then we okay, did Tom Sawyer really um, have a friend named Huck Finn or something like that? You know, we'd, we'd be in debate. If my wife says I love you in a love letter, I'm going to interpret it as a certain way. I'm, she's not saying I hate you, right? She's saying I love you. There is one meaning to what she has written, and that is the same with God's word. He has a meaning. 
But then we have what we call application. Application is how that word relates to my life. There are many applications for a single passage. When God says, um, be holy for I am holy. Okay, holiness might mean um, that you don't lie, you don't cuss. It might mean you don't drink alcohol. It might mean you um, don't hang around with women that do. Okay, so no. Anyways, so you, you're holy, you're separate from sin. Holiness has many different applications to it, but the meaning of holiness is one meaning. And we get those applications from principles in God's word, the overall lesson that God's word is trying to teach us. <clears throat> so when we get to the Old Testament, we look at the passage in Deuteronomy chapter number 12 that we just looked at. What is the principle, the lesson that God is intending to teach me from this passage? Obviously, as an American, do I sacrifice a, a lamb to a false god? Does anybody in America that you know of personally sacrifice a lamb to a false god? Probably not, right? Okay. Um, and, honest, and does God expect us as Christians to have an altar up here and we'll cut the lamb's throat and we'll bleed them out here in, in the front of the church? Is that what God's expectations for us as New Testament believers is? No, it is not, right? So how does this apply to us? Ask yourselves, what does this teach me about God and who he is? Well, this teaches me that God is holy, and to define that, God is separate from sin. God is separate from the gods of the world. God is different. He is not the same as the other gods, okay? What does this passage teach me about how I should live? God wants me to worship him differently than the heathen worship their gods. That's ultimately the principle here. God himself is holy. He is separate from sin. And therefore, because he is separate from other gods, he wants to be worshipped differently than we worship other gods. So to bring this to the practical sense, what gods do we worship in American society today? We don't worship false gods. We don't bow down before them, but we worship other gods, right? We worship entertainment. We worship sex. We worship materialism. We worship our own way, doing what I want. Have it your way. Just do it. All, all these different self-focused. Follow your heart, as Disney teaches, okay? We worship these false gods in our life. <clears throat> and so there should be a distinction between how I pursue those, or how the world pursues those false gods in culture and how I worship my God. So how does this relate to the believer today? I think, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, is this principle just an Old Testament principle, or is this a New Testament principle as well? Hebrews 12, verse 28 says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. If we are to serve God acceptably, there must also be something that is unacceptable, right? You can't have an acceptable way if you just don't care. Like if Daniel doesn't care if you wear brown or blue today, am I going to offend Daniel? So everything's acceptable to Daniel because he just doesn't care. But if Daniel really hates brown and I choose to wear brown today, then it is not acceptable. He has not accepted the fact that I wore brown and he is offended by it, right? 
okay? So you can't, have an you can't have an acceptable if there isn't something that is also unacceptable. We are to serve him, God, acceptably. How? With reverence and godly fear. So he defines it. We are to worship God with reverence, with respect, and godly fear. A fear of God, the Bible teaches that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we should have a respect for God. And again, in Hebrews 12, 29, it says, Our God is a consuming fire. That is the, the next verse. It is the motivation for why we should worship God acceptably. God is not to be trifled with. And so the worship of God isn't something that we can take lightly. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. It's the passage about the Lord's Supper. It says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So the Lord's Supper is part of our worship, right? It's a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Paul was telling them that when you take of the Lord's Supper, you are to not take it unworthily. Okay, so there is obviously an acceptable standard for how God expects to be worshipped in the Lord's Supper in this passage. And then another passage, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. This is, almost, this is pretty much a direct parallel with our passage in Deuteronomy. God didn't want to be worshipped in the ways of the people that were around them because he wanted the, his people to be distinct. He wanted to be distinct. He wanted there to be a separation. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, which quotes the Old Testament, but it, Paul obviously brings it up because he expected us to follow this, this command as well. He says, Come out from among them, and be ye separate. As believers, we are called to be separate from the world, not to be like the world. That doesn't mean you have to go out of your way to be strange. The Bible passage that talks about the believers being a peculiar people, I've known kids growing up especially who really took that to heart. Okay, so they wanted to wear things just to be weird, to be different from everybody else. This doesn't mean you have to be frumpy, you have to be ugly, you have to be strange, you have to be backwards. That's not what this is saying. This is, this is saying that we are going to be different. Why? Because we are set apart to God. We are separated to God. And the very fact that we are God's, we are his people, we want to please and we want to love him, inevitably will make us different from the people that are around us. If everybody else is dating and sleeping around with their girlfriends and boyfriends, and you choose not to, that has made you different, right? If you believe that you should dress modestly, that's going to make you stand out. You can dress nice and dress fashionably and still be modest, though, okay? So you don't have to be weird, but you can still be separate, distinct. When you choose not to cheat on your income taxes, everybody file your income taxes uh, this week? No? I did. So <laughs> you choose not to cheat on your income taxes. There are a lot of people in the world who do do that. You choose to work hard and not sit around and, and be lazy at work. That's being different because and the motivation behind it is you love God. You want to please him. And it automatically makes a distinction between you and the world that is around you. Ultimately, though, the lesson that I wanted to get is this. Okay, again, God has a right to be worshipped. God is worthy 
of worship. But God doesn't just have a right to be worshipped. He has a right to say how he wants to be worshipped. Worship is not about you. Uh, in our society, the, especially in the music of our churches, there is a large focus on how does this music make me feel? Do I enjoy this music? Does it uplift my spirit? Does it make me feel happy? Does it make me feel like I've entered into the spirit of worship? That is a wrong focus. Worship isn't about you. Honestly, whether, whether you feel happy about the song or not doesn't matter. How it makes God feel is ultimately what matters. So when we deal with the topic of worship and specifically worship music in our churches, because that's the battle, that's where we things shifting off in most of our churches, we have to remember that God is the focus of our worship. God has the right to decide what that worship is to be. And it is to be a worship that is holy, a worship that is separated from the worship of the world, that is different, that is distinct, because he is worthy of our praise and he is worthy to be honored. And he wants to be separate. He wants to be honored and glorified and exalted among the world. So I know I'm done a little bit early. I talk too fast. I've figured that out. Okay, so, but we are, I do want to have an, an invitation this uh, morning. If we could get the pianist to come, we'll go ahead and close our eyes, bow our heads. <clears throat> challenge for you this morning again is, are we worshiping God in the way that he wants us to? Are we acceptably worshiping him? Have we made our worship self-focused, or are we worshiping God to please him, to exalt him, to lift him up? Carrie, what song do you have? 389? Okay, let's go ahead and stand. And if you, if you want to, to come pray, to talk to the Lord about what we've talked about, go ahead and come forward. Um, we'll go ahead and sing page 389. I probably should grab the hymn book. Page 389. And I'll be waiting. If anybody needs to come talk to me about uh, membership or anything like that, we can, we can talk about that and uh, discuss that. If you need me to pray with you, I'll also be down below as well to pray with anybody who wants to. Page 389 is your all on the altar.